0: All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the Photo Work podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf speeding right along because the episode is long I'm not going to make a joke I'm just going to introduce my good friend and producer the one and only back from vacation Michael Chovendalton. Hello Michael. Hi, yes.
1: It was a it was a nice trip. Uh we went to uh Dollywood and Pigeon Forge. What? Ford. Yes. Wait.
0: I knew you were in Tennessee but you went to Dollywood?
1: Yeah, went to Dollywood and uh we had uh we had to slightly alter our plans because as everybody knows uh Things aren't as good as we would we were hoping they would. be. Oh, Delta, so we, yeah,
0: Delta, yeah. Is a, yeah.
1: We spent a lot more time outdoors, but it was still a lot of fun. And yeah, we well, you didn't go place. to be
0: indoors, but I'm. But I no. guess, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how was was Dollywood a blast?
1: It was. It was. We spent most of the time in the amusement park because it was outdoors. But right. they have they have some Dolly Parton memorabilia and things to see uh, in the amusement park as okay. well. Okay.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: And lots of music playing. Yes. That is so great.
0: All right. Next episode more about Dollywood. Um, all right. Well, let's get right into it. Before we get started, I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done, which is just give a plug to an organization. Selma Fernandez Richter, the founder of Ralu's Workshops, is doing some amazing work. Selma lives in the United States, so I guess goes back and forth between where she's from, Mexico. I think she's from Oaxaca and Mm -hmm. and the United States. And she's doing workshops between both countries. I'm doing an online lecture series with her. It's going to be seven Mm. Thursdays starting in late October with amazing people from Brian Skipma, Julian Rao, Phil Taldano, Jess Dugan, Susan Mizellis, etc. Wow. It's going to be very participatory. So a lot of time built in for sort of discussion with participants, uh, people who sign up. So please check that out. My compensation, I just want to say, is not tied to attendance, but I really, obviously, the organization's is. And so I really want to show love for this organization, and I want I want it to soar. Uh, I really believe in what they're doing. So check out all those workshops yeah. and... Um, Yes. Thank you for putting up with that. And let's get into today's (laughs) (laughs) great episode. It was a wonderful conversation that I had with a longtime educator and wonderful photographer, Tim Davis, who has a new book out with Aperture called I'm Looking Through You, and it's photographs of L.A.,
1: yeah, you have a very uh, entertaining conversation about L.A.
0: <laughs> yes, we do get in, We actually do get quite in the weeds on L.A. It, L.A. is such a character, and I used mm-hmm. to spend a ton of time there uh, in my former life. So we do talk about L.A. a lot. But wonderful nuggets from Tim um, about mm-hmm. switching... From using large format to a digital camera, from shooting four, five, eight, ten film to mm-hmm. to being more run and gun, and he's really because he's a teacher, he's so wonderful at sort of explaining all his thinking on that, how it affected him, and yeah, I thought that was really fun.
1: I love the way he talks about. Making photographs, approaching people, you know, approaching how to make a photograph. Mm-hmm. It is, it's a, it's a really fantastic conversation. He refers to, um, you know, uh, making photographs as kind of foraging, and and mm-hmm. he also, he also refers to, you know, wanting to change what he does as being kind of like a, a cheetah being released into, into the wild. Yeah, it's, it's such a a good conversation about yeah. uh, his process of making photos. Yeah. Yes,
0: absolutely. Well, I really recommend this book, mm-hmm. too. The object itself is not very large, and it's quite robust, it's just easy to tuck in your backpack. But there's actually over 150 pictures in it, so it's it really has a lot to offer, and I just really loved it. Anyway, yeah. all right, well, let's get to it. It's a longish episode, so Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away.
1: My pleasure, and here is your conversation with Tim Davis.
0: Kim Davis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I'm honored. So let's do what we do, um, which is if you can just uh, yeah, tell us um, your life story in uh, you know ten minutes or less.
2: I am an artist and a writer and a musician and a dilettante. <laughs> Anybody with that many ands in their bio is a dilettante, <laughs> by definition. I was um, born in Malawi, in Central East Africa. I grew up as a little kid in Saratoga Springs, New York. My father is a musician, and he was a photographer as well, and had a little dark room off of our kitchen. And um, I still get a little bit hungry whenever I smell darkroom chemistry. Um, like a Pavlovian thing, (laughs) you know, from a very early age, I thought of a, uh, pleasurable activity as being, get a camera and go out and wander around and take pictures with it. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I remember the very first time I did it, I was about seven and I, when I got the pictures back, I was extremely disappointed because they were in color And I had expected them to be in black and white. So right at the beginning of my photographic practice is a kind of sense that the photograph itself is a completely transformed object, right? It's not just a representation of the world. It's some Mm -hmm. kind of strangely different thing. And, you know, I had a whole other kind of upbringing and my parents split up and then eventually we ended up in Amherst, Massachusetts. And in 10th grade or whatever you do it, I walked into the guidance counselor's office and his name was Buzz Bray and he was a, also the hockey coach of the Amherst Regional High School and he had this weird computer, I mean it must have been some kind of very primitive machine and you put in your interests and it would tell you what colleges you could go to. And, um, I did that and it, you know, came out with a dot matrix printout and the top of the list was Bard College. And coincidentally, I, uh, my, my mom was a, uh, librarian at Hampshire College and, and every year, and my stepfather was a professor there. So they had a, a list of colleges that were free for the children of faculty and Mm -hmm. staff and Bard was on that list. So I applied to Bard and I went to Bard. I studied with Stephen Shore and, you know, right away I knew, I mean, it was just unbelievably easy for me. It was never a struggle. It was never, um, something that felt like work. Photography always was a thing that felt like a recreational activity mm-hmm. and I knew right away that everything else I was doing including poetry which I studied as well um was was a struggle and it was mm-hmm. difficult and uh I graduated from college I made some work that I still am really fond of I moved to New York City and I sort of was faced with this dilemma of being poor and photography being expensive and poetry being free you know you, all you needed was pencils mm-hmm. and you could steal those from the bank or the uh you know like miniature golf course <laughs> or whatever when you well, got well, out of the were, city
0: those were little pencils but yeah
2: yeah yeah the little ones they're the best to write poetry <laughs> with because poems are short you know <laughs> oh you can't write an epic pencil with a miniature golf I mean you can't write an epic poem with a miniature no. golf pencil. Well, you can you quote could, me on that.
0: But <laughs> that would be a mismatch. Yeah.
2: Yeah the it turns out the Aeneid was written with a miniature golf pencil. <laughs> <laughs> Virgil joke number one. We're having fun. And uh so so it just I just veered into poetry because Um, photography was more expensive. I also did drop off my portfolio at the museum of modern art and it came back without them, you know, going like, you know, they used to be able to drop off your portfolio there. And it was like a kind of a, uh, Johnny Carson moment. Like either they would take you after your comedy set, they would either take you beckon you over to sit next to Johnny or they wouldn't. And that was like your career Mm -hmm. was either made whether Johnny Carson, you know, called you over. So I didn't get called over and that was kind of it. Like I sort of stopped and became a poet and fell in with a group of poets. And, but I always knew, I always knew that it was unnatural. It was just a struggle. And so eventually I got a job at, at New Directions Publishing Company and was an editor there and started making photographs there in my off time. And, um... That's how that kind of started my, my, um, I think of it as like, you know, when they want to send a satellite or a spaceship into outer space and they'll like gravitationally slingshot it around another planet or something or Mm -hmm. the moon that was like that. Like I was like, okay, here I go. Photography and slingshot it around (laughs) that project and then ended up going to grad school. And then essentially that's what I've been doing since.
0: And you wound up teaching at Bard, so you went sort of went home.
2: I did. I, I have had a perfectly parabolic career where I, I went to Bard, then I went to graduate school at Yale, but then I had taught at Yale, then I taught then I taught at Bard. Eventually I guess I'll teach, you know, photography in my high school or become the guidance counselor.
0: <laughs> I love that your guidance counselor had like Well, I'm not sure if he had like some early AI machine that, you know, picked where you should go to school or if your mother wanted you to go to Bard and paid him off for that. uh, Somehow that was some magic trick. I
2: doubt that, Uh, but it might have been. I think it was probably just a very simple thing where you put in your interests and they had a list of, you know, 50 subjects and then the colleges that were supposedly good at those things.
0: I went to a high school that was so. I don't even know what the word is for it, ridiculous, that I, I don't even, we didn't even have a guidance counselor. So um, whenever I hear guidance counselor, it's sort of, I imagine a sort of school that I would see on television, like, you know, I went to a school that, you know, was so progressive that it progressived itself out of existence, like, you right, know, right, right. point, no one wanted to send their kids there and it no longer exists. Um, that's is what that happens. true? Yes, it is true. And What's also true is we had a smoking lounge. I I mean, it's hard. It's really hard. I feel like when I say that, I even think, is that true? Because it sounds so crazy, but it's actually true. And you can imagine what was going on in the smoking lounge. But anyway, Mm. hopefully my mother wasn't paying a lot of tuition for that. Um, (laughs) So, you know, the sort of impetus for having you on the podcast now is that you just uh, published a new book with Aperture called I'm Looking Through You, which I love, and um, is right in front of me. And I, I want to, you know, I want to talk about the book. And I know that'll take us into all sorts of other topics about your, you know, career. But I will say that I found the book, I've always really admired your work, your, you know, you. Your work tends to be very formal, which I love, and aesthetic and um, observational—all things I'm really interested in. But I'm also a very emotional person, and I found your work sometimes a little bit cool for someone as mushy as me. That's—I hope that's not uh, doesn't—that doesn't feel like a criticism. It's just I'm just a very you know, emotional person. So, but I not found I found this body of work very different and not just I mean, I guess what I'm interested in and I want you to talk about is, you know, you employed very different techniques for making this body of work, but I also feel like what came out was work that feels more emotional and more joyful and I love seeing joy in artwork. People don't always think that that's acceptable. So, I mean, does that sound right to you, or um, am I projecting? It sounds completely. It okay. sounds
2: completely spot on, and I agree with you one hundred percent. I think that, I think that the work I had made previously—not not all of it—but it was very calculatedly sort of gallery art mm-hmm. mostly, mm-hmm. and. You know, so it had a kind of home in that sort of limited capacity, right, of sort of um, a very temporary thing that is somewhat limited in scope. Yeah. And, you know, this this work comes, you know, later in life and it comes at this at a kind of release point of an artist, you know, essentially a, a middle career artist who's you know I've never been the kind of artist that just can do the same thing over and over again Mm -hmm. but this was a real inflection point of wanting to do everything differently and you know I had had a job since I was 14 years old and suddenly I didn't and I was I was going on sabbatical from my teaching job and going to Los Angeles and I just had this kind of revelation of let's do everything different and so I got this digital camera which I had never used before. I decided to shoot with a longer lens, I decided to shoot, you know, in an open-ended way and not really know what I was looking for and be open to the the more conceptual which I think you're reading as cool energy of it emerge naturally rather than rather than, you know, c- conceptual the word conceptual tends to imply something you thought about before you started but i you know there's a whole level of thought and feeling that photography i think inevitably brings about and it was just something that i was like a cheetah raised in captivity released back into the wild you know mm-hmm. you see those videos where mm-hmm. they like release the thing and it's just yeah. so happy and yeah. bouncing up and down you always well, that's cry how,
0: at that point
2: you mm-hmm. cry and yeah. that's how i felt yeah and i mean i've been you know and in my teaching it's interesting that you bring up emotion because the writing in the book which i'm equally as proud of yeah, as great. the um thank you as the um photographs is a thing that i've also been pushing more and more toward emotion Mm-hmm. And a lot of that kind of came from teaching, and one of the things I I noticed when I was over the years was that I would I would get students who would, oh their boyfriend would leave them or they were their grandmother would die or something would happen and they would suddenly go like I can't I can't work on my project, and I I started to say well don't worry about that all but keep photographing all I want you to do is is just go out and. Whenever you see anything that brings you a, a feeling, an analogous feeling to, toward what's on you, in your inner life, take a picture of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I kind of developed it into this idea I call photosensitivity, the idea that that photography is a kind of spiritual practice. Now I'm using that word as like a person that's just never connected to any kind of spiritual idea. In fact, I'm hostile to most of them. I'm not only an an atheist, I'm like an Mm anti-theist, but I think photography is a, it's a kind of reverential practice Mm -hmm. devoted to, toward the world around us. And I've noticed that when the students would go off and do this, they would feel better. Mm-hmm. They would feel connected to something and, as opposed to not, you know, feeling connected. And I don't know that I consciously thought about that when I was making this work. But, you know, it's it's pretty obvious to me that when you look at a work of art, you, you describe my work as being formal and, you know, sort of crafted, that there's form And then there's content, right? Which is kind of like most people, 99% of people, when they think about a photograph, that's what they think of, right? The content. Mm -hmm. But then there's this other thing, which is feeling, right? There is feeling in art. And I'm with you, right? I look at art, and one of the first things I go is, was the artist enjoying making this? Mm -hmm. And so often I don't get that feeling. It's either like a factory or it's just something that's so familiar or it seems like some kind of torture for them. And that kind of feeling of being the artist, what it was like to be the artist, that's one thing. And then there's the yeah, the feeling that why is the person bringing this to us? Right? Why are they you know, are they trying to uplift us or or not? And and that is very much both in the photography and in the writing that I that I started to write these essays over the last few years. Really, at starting at this time, I would, I would get up every morning at sunrise and sit and write these kind of autobiographical essays. And then my son would wake up, my wife would wake up, I would get my son off to school, then I would go out and photograph all day. And I started to just write these essays and I would find myself weeping while I was writing them. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm writing this one right now that's just like I can't get through a page without being in tears it's about the new york yankees
0: well i think a lot of us are crying over the new york yankees but um, i'm sure you mean something deeper than the fact that
2: they stink <laughs> they're pretty good right now they're getting better uh, but oh, um, no,
0: don't fall for that oh god it's such <laughs> I'm, not, I, I'm
2: no longer a yankee fan oh, anyway okay. that's it's a, it's about my relationship with them over the years but and through you know divorce and alienation and other things but so, I'm glad you picked up on that because I think it's really important. And maybe this is like a being a mature artist thing, you know? I don't know, where like you're, you know, yourself better. And so you have more access to your inner world.
0: What about having a young child?
2: Well, that certainly brings lots of emotions. There's yeah. No doubt and that's about what that. I
0: was, that was my assumption, to be honest. You know, I, you and I know each other, but, you know, not that well. And, but, I knew you had a, a a young son. And i that's actually what I assumed was that, I mean, I see this a lot with, with people that, you know, they're sort of able to maintain a sort of distance from some of their more overwhelming feelings, or a part of themselves that they just sort of are keeping tucked away and then they have kids and the floodgates open you know that it's very difficult to to keep things sort of compartmentalized
2: that's interesting the very first of these pictures i started to make with him like asleep on my back Mm-hmm. yeah i mean there's no there's no doubt about it a lot of those emotions especially in the you know pandemic have not exactly been totally positive but mm-hmm. uh but you're right there it's unavoidable it's just you know you're, you're 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 like living in a kind of uh dostoevsky constantly level of of like there's just feelings all the time
0: well you're also not just you right i mean when, when you become a parent you know i would think that you know your sort of sense of yourself in the world would have to change really drastically and I would think that would just shake up how one's positioned themselves even their own sort of self-mythology.
2: It's true And, and it's interesting that you bring this up because you know the work that I do and and the work especially beginning with this work and then the subsequent work in upstate New York which is a kind of second volume of I'm looking through you in a way when I came back here, I'm still kind of working the same way. It just requires an unbelievable amount of time, right? It's just, it's just constantly being in the world, wandering around. Mm-hmm. I sometimes look down at my phone at the end of the day and I've walked, you know, 25,000 steps. Or right. whatever. So that kind of devotion. And, and if I could, you know, I would do it every day. I mean, I would be thoroughly happy to do nothing but wander around with a camera taking pictures, but you can't do that, um, when you have a child. So there's a conflict there. And yet I feel really grateful to my family because they, I think they know that taking pictures is like a spiritual balm. Mm -hmm. Like it really, after a day of doing it, even if I get nothing good, I feel completely renewed and connected to the world Sounds hokey, but
0: no, no, it doesn't. Let me, let me just pick up on something you just said, even if I get nothing good. I think you so you used to shoot with either four, five or eight, ten, a, a big view camera on on a tripod. And I know with that type of slow going work that often one has a sense if they because they're making so few pictures. And just the style of that work, often you do have a sense of whether, but not always. But I would think with using the digital camera, 35 millimeter aspect ratio, being able to shoot a lot more, do you always know now when you come back? I mean, are you always right when you think? Oh, I didn't get anything good. I mean, how often do you look back and say, "Well, actually"?
2: Never. I, I know. You always yeah, know. I know. Oh my
0: god, that's amazing.
2: Yeah. I mean, the years and years of using a view camera, and just being able to kind of corral the sheep into the uh-huh. into the <laughs> in, you know into the fold. So carefully that like I'm I haven't yet got to the point where I'm kind of, you know, shooting from the hip. I'm still working in a way that I'm I'm seeing the image pretty clearly before I ever raise the camera up Mm -hmm. to my eye. And I don't shoot a lot of frames. I, I, I shoot one or two, which is someone recently told me that Eggleston said the same thing. He only shoots one or two frames of anything. So I pretty much know. I mean, there's times when I when you've, you know, technically screwed it up. I don't spend a lot of time looking, if any time, looking at the pictures on the camera. I almost never do that. That really seems like a waste of time. But uh, no, I know pretty much.
0: So it's interesting. So you're really... You're really use, I don't want to get too techy, but it, it is interesting that you're sort of using the digital camera the way you use the view camera. I mean, a lot of people shoot digitally so they can be looking all the time and they can be shooting a lot of frames. So it's really interesting that you're... By the way, I'm not really a huge... I mean, look, I always say this, but I, I don't like to sort of be definite because everyone has different ways of doing things that work for them. But, you know... I always find the overshooting problematic. So, you know, this makes a lot of sense to me, but it is it is surprising that you've switched over and yet you're still being so judicious.
2: But I see it all the time teaching. You give, we, at Bard, we give everybody... Any, everyone uses analog for two years and then we give them a digital camera and about three quarters of them immediately, you know, like, it's like they... Uh, you know, grew their hair out and joined a rock band after yep. they had been in, you know, um, you know, in a convent. Yeah. And they just suddenly lose it and they go crazy and yeah. they lose all their discipline. It's <laughs> yeah. like a room springer, you know, <laughs> but that didn't happen to me at all. I mean, it was like, I just knew. So I'm so confident. I mean, and, and I, I'm saying that and I want to assure everyone that I'm not confident in the rest of my life, and that's why, over the years, I've just you know, even in that early time, when I was sort of doing poetry, I I kind of knew that photography was this this thing that made me the best me I could be. Mm-hmm. That that feeling of confidence and of certainty and of of, of surety, you know, it's just like a an incredibly uh, beautiful feeling. I don't want to discount the idea that it's like a kind of colonialist, whatever, masculine feeling too, maybe. But I just know that as a human being, the feeling that, I don't know. That you're doing a, what
0: you meant to be doing. I mean, I think exactly. you said it earlier when you said how when you were writing poetry, it didn't feel right. I mean, the struggle. Look, I've heard writers talk about you know, how long they can work on one sentence. And so that's obviously a struggle. But what you're talking about is, you know, inside of you when something feels like the thing you're meant to be doing. I mean, look, not everyone has that. But I've certainly experienced that in my life as well, when I feel like I'm trying to get a shoe on my foot, that's not the right size. It's just not Mm -hmm. the right size. It's never going to fit. You know, and then you get the shoe that fits and and you're like, it's such a relief. So I, I understand I understand what you're saying. Let me ask you about a few or just one thing you talk about a lot when you talk about your work is the interplay between sincerity and irony. And you definitely I mean it's all over the new book, but I do think there's more sincerity. And I think that's what I was sort of getting at earlier. I was just thinking as you were talking about being confident that one of the things that I think really comes through in this book is confidence. I mean, first of all, it's very, the book itself is not that big a physical object, but there's over 150 photographs in it. So that's pretty amazing, pretty unusual. And... The way the book is designed and the way one interacts with it, it does not feel overwhelming. It feels right. I mean, at first, I didn't even realize it. I was just having so much fun with the book. And then at a certain point, I was like, wow, there are a lot of photographs in here. But the way you interact with the book and the way the pictures interact with each other, it's just, it's like an incredibly jaunty song. You know, it just Mm. is really moves along. And there's different, you know, there are bridges and there are, you know, there's, I don't want to get too into musical jargon, but, you know, there's a lot of really great pacing, but for the most part, it it really moves. I mean, and there's, I love the confidence to do something like this. I, I marked in the book, there's a very sincere photograph to a point of, Uh, a guy sort of rockabilly-ish looking character noodling on his um, guitar and his electric guitar in what I assume is his home. And there's like a a collection of like tiki carvings Mm -hmm. behind Mm -hmm. him, which is amazing. But the look on his face is really quite moving. And you Mm -hmm. play music and we'll talk about that. And I play the guitar not very well, but it's a big part of my life. And so I know that Moment of sort of having your eyes closed and just going into that state when you're playing. And so I really find that picture ultimately quite sincere and and moving. And then you flip the page (laughs) and there's a photograph. I love this photograph. Um, There's a photograph of a Wes Montgomery double album. I don't know if it's a double album, but it's one of those.
2: A gatefold.
0: Right. And there's the picture on the cover of the West Montgomery album is a girl sort of sitting on a rocky shore of the ocean, looking down and right in front of it's really hard to describe this, I realize as I'm saying it, but right in front of that picture on this album is a casserole dish. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and so, yeah, those are those are Jamie's <laughs> cheesy enchiladas
0: so so it looks like she's looking at the cheesy enchiladas and it's yeah. really funny and there's something about going from the picture of that guy to that picture that I just described not particularly well but I tried that is sort of falls right into that space, I think, of sincerity and irony. And I mean, I don't think the picture of the girl is particularly ironic, but it's certainly humorous. And one could make a argument for irony. But, you know, humor is a huge part of your practice. So, you know, how do you think about when putting a book together, putting images like that in sequence?
2: Oh, it's so gratifying to hear you talk about those two pictures, which are not two pictures that anyone I've talked to has noticed, really. Um, and, and you're right, there's a lot of pictures in here, and so it's easy to focus on lots of things, mm-hmm. but you've picked up on, you know, one one of the things I think about the book and what I wanted to be able to do was to ran, be able to randomly open it and there be a story there, mm-hmm. some kind of story, either in an individual picture or in a sequence that you should be able to kind of pick it up anywhere and dive right into a a complicated and rich emotional world and wait tim i'm going to
0: interrupt you for one second and just tell people because i realized a lot of people aren't going to know this Wes montgomery is a very famous jazz guitarist so the guitar, guy playing the guitar. And then so I just realized I grew up with Wes Montgomery, but I realized a lot of people probably don't know who he is. So One, sorry, one of the great on. jazz guitar players yeah.
2: played with his thumb and made these records that are... You know, they ver he's a virtuoso jazz guitar player, but also he kind of like many jazz musicians started to kind of look at the sales of records and thought, hmm, there's like this easy listening genre mm-hmm. that people are selling a lot more records than we are, and so there's a beautiful kind of cheesy energy to some of that music. That, I love,
0: that- I love Wes Montgomery, so oh, like
2: I, he's a genius, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt, and about I, it, I but- love
0: that. Cow, Cal- I mean, he was one of the people who sort of invented. The California, the guitar, California sound. I mean, he was instrumental in a whole something that people probably just take for granted now that didn't exist before him. Anyway, go on. Well, so, I think
2: I think it's it, I think it's it's good to bring it up. You know, if I back up and I and I I'm brought to the question of those two pictures and that moment in the book. You know, I've been doing this thing where I open up the book randomly and and just generate like essentially like an instant lecture about it. So Mm -hmm. this is something that I'm getting good at. But, you know, that that picture of that guy, he's got this pompadour that that was that was about eight o'clock in the morning and I was out photographing and this guy came out of his building and just said, hey, uh, you know, do you want to come take my picture? I have a tiki bar in my apartment. (laughs) And I said, sure. And you know this is just like oh a, my God, an that's LA right. thing,
0: Everyone's right? an exhibitionist. Yeah.
2: <laughs> everyone, everybody. I write in the book that you know the when you ask someone to take their picture in the rest of the world, the rate of acceptance is like about I'd say thirty five percent. Right. And in LA, it's seventy five percent. Like people are just like they just want to have their pictures taken. That's and why
0: they're in LA. Yeah.
2: That's why they're there, and it's magic. I mean, it's totally wonderful. So. So I go up there and he's got it's like a one a studio apartment, a one room apartment, essentially. And he's got this crazy tiki bar and he's got rats, which I couldn't get into the picture. You know, that was one of those great photography moments of the exposition of the picture. Right. Like you want the rats in there. But is there a good picture where the rats are? No, I couldn't get the rats in it and still have it be a good picture. A classic example of like to me how to get the rats in there. And if you're, you know, if you're doing an assignment for a magazine, and they're like, "Well, the guy has rats, and you got to figure out how to get the rats in there." But if you're just you, you can go, "Okay, I'm going to center on the guy." And I think you picked up on it that I just immediately, this guy sought me out. He had something he wanted to show, mm-hmm. and he wanted his. He was proud of his, you know, rockabilly life mm-hmm. and his kind of uh, eccentric community that he was involved in Mm -hmm. and he you know and it was beautiful so you know in terms of that picture right like i am not one of those magic portrait people this is again like if you you know from teaching like you just get the people that immediately, right away when they point the camera at somebody they get something like some emotion that I would I often describe as like something that the sitter doesn't even know about themselves mm-hmm. like something something deep I am not necessarily like that I am much more inclined to like be interested in form and color and energy and emotion and, and uh, then emotion in the person and so I've learned some strategies like that isn't the thing that I'm naturally gifted at mm-hmm. but I've learned strategies and those include waiting right just waiting that once the person has agreed to be in the picture they're not going to sort of walk away. And after a while, right. they're going to kind of forget about you. And um, most of these pictures, in fact, I'm not sure if there's a single picture in the book of someone looking into the camera, except for a dog. And that's partly like a, I don't know exactly why, but but I'm, I feel like that's just something that I, maybe I'm like slightly on a spectrum of something and I'm not like a, it, totally capable of, registering that i mean i've done it but it isn't a thing i do naturally i tend to wait till they go into their own heads Mm -hmm. um into their own worlds and then you know the next picture is one of the very few pictures in the book that you know comes directly out of my own life like Mm -hmm. almost all of them are photo expedition pictures but there's a couple of pictures and that comes from I've, I have this group of friends who are who are record collectors and super avid music history nerds. and they all used to live here in this little town of Tivoli. and then this guy, Ian Davis, moved to LA. He's a painter, a really wonderful painter. We We kind of reconfigured the record club out there. and I, part of my practice, uh, you know, of being in the world, right? So so I, I feel really devoted personally. I don't mandate this to anyone else. I think everyone's art and photographic practices need to suit them in the same way I'm describing this work as suiting my constitution. I would never tell anybody that they have to do anything like this. But for me, the idea of being around, wandering around all day, not knowing what's going to happen is thrilling and exciting. I don't want to sit in a studio. I can't can't sit down for very long. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... Part of that has always had this like record collecting and foraging. Like I'm a foraging person. Mm-hmm. Like I, I feel like I'm foraging for images. And then I'm often foraging for food at the same time around here or in LA. It's very easy to do. And records have always been a thing too. So I'm always looking for records. And whenever I go into somebody's, you know, garage or apartment, I'm always like, so where are the records? Are you still listening to records? And that was just a record I had bought in LA in a junk shop. And then we, we had this night and uh, a record listening night, which we used to call the Tulip, which was the Tivoli underground listening party. <laughs> and, you know, I just, someone had taken that record and put it there on the table. We had dinner and Jamie, who's a photographer, Jamie Davis, Ian's wife had made these, what she calls her cheesy ensaladas, And it just was so, so, you know, that record, which you're right, and it's called California Dreamin'. Yep. And it does have this energy in it, which I think is prevalent in California, um, and it's in the music, right? It's in the music, it, and it's in the, it's in the people, and it's very much in the air, which is a kind of easygoing, uh, unobtrusive, gentle kind of way of being, and it's just a thing that I long for in my life. And I, too, am an East Coast Jew with abrasive family members who want, you know, like who who thinks of argument as a kind of uh, recreational sport, (laughs) you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I don't know it, it's like you just uh, you get to you get to California and you just feel this different feeling and as I write in the book right this isn't discounting the unbelievable horrors of the place like of just you know terrible fires and no one should be living there it's an environmental disaster homelessness inequality racial injustice body image problems like the place is a disaster and in yet? every way and yet people <laughs> seem kind of happy and it's like it's 70 degrees and there's no humidity and there's a kind of pleasure a kind of epicurean quality of life yeah, that I people you get to where drops
0: to a formal meeting you're generally just does something to you
2: <laughs> and and I know I'm like I, I like when I think about Los Angeles, like I think the first time I really learned anything about it was uh Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just oh, God, portrayed yeah, as totally. the shallowest place, yeah. right? But one of the points of this whole book for me is that shallowness is a thing that the camera is connected to. The camera cannot see anything except the surface of things. Mm-hmm. And everything we put into that surface, including our dreams and aspirations and our, uh, you know, our our aesthetic aspirations, those are all things that the camera loves and the camera feels really connected to. So I don't know. I I mean, I love it there. Everybody, when I, and I just gave a book party there at Hauser and Wirth at the art book store there and You know, people just came up to me afterward and they just said, it's so good to hear someone talk about L.A. this way. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, everyone there is complaining about it, too. And yes, I'm an outsider. I'm not. I wasn't born there. I wasn't raised there. I'm not I'm not some kind of uh, um, documentary insider. But that doesn't mean, you know, Robert Frank wasn't an American uh, not to compare myself, but...
0: No, no, I know exactly what you're saying. Look, I've spent a lot of time in L.A., so I'm chuckling to myself because I, I understand everything you're saying. I mean, L.A. is a... I don't want to take this too far down the what-is-L.A. path, but, I mean, it is... You know, why should it be any different than the way we feel about our beloved New York? We love it and we hate it. I mean, I'm a third-generation New York Cityer, and mm. so I... I couldn't feel more strongly about New York City. I couldn't feel more possessive and defensive of it when someone when someone else insults it. But, you know, there's also a lot of things about it that make me miserable. So, you know, any place that's intense, that has a lot, is going to have a lot that's both good and bad. And, you know... And L.A. has its own specific magic, and it's made up of all those things you described. It's made up of the goofiness, the, you know... I, I was at a dinner party once in L.A. where the topic of conversation um, turned to... this. I'm not joking around. This is true. Turned to people's eye color. And <laughs> my friend, who I was staying with at the time out there, said... We, we have to change the topic of conversation or I'm quite sure Sasha's going to get up and leave the table, and <laughs> um, which was true. So, you know, this is a place where people consider that, okay, I, I now I'm just being mean towards LA, but it, it can get, it can live in that very shallow space. And of course, there are incredibly interesting people out there and incredible artists, as incredible art scene and it's, it's developed more and more, but there is something about... The air and the light and the just climate in general that is so powerful and does cast a spell. And look, that's why that, that is California dreaming, you know, and that's why it, it lures so many people there and casts a spell on people like you. So I think it's totally understandable.
2: You um, know, I, I hate to admit this and I shouldn't admit this on on air, but, you know, I lived in New York for 18 years. I never liked it. I never liked living there much.
0: Yeah, it's intense. I mean,
2: I was poor, and being poor there has gotten increasingly difficult. Yeah,
0: well now it's a nightmare. Yeah,
2: and it's a nightmare now. But you know, part of the story for me, and I and I think that this is an admission, but also it's honest, is that it's a co- it's a it's a collective experience, New York. It's totally collective, and the joy of it is collective. Mm-hmm. It's it's that feeling of like every day you see somebody weeping right on the streets like where we're, you're living in, in this in this play and you're in the middle of it mm-hmm. right it's in the round and I feel really like this is just you know I've always felt this way that I kind of need to be in my own world mm-hmm. and as a photographer you know I, I I almost never photographed in New York City I lived there for 18 years I lived in the East Village and I just never, uh, I never photographed there. I was always like driving through the Holland Tunnel, you know, going mm-hmm. like, I'm going to go out and make photographs. Mm-hmm. And and I think that had largely to do with the sense of like wanting to be in a th- place that other people weren't observing anything or right. paying yeah, any attention to that. it. And New York's yeah. just not like that. No. And, and you know, the classic photography of New York is of the people, mm-hmm. right? You don't look at a Helen Levitt and look at the architecture. Right, Yeah right exactly. i mean it's not about yeah. the place or and, gary
0: wintergrand or exactly or joel Meyerowitz, et etc 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 yeah
2: or dean arbus yeah. right i mean yeah. you you it's about the people and it's all you know that sense of of la right for me like i was walking around on the streets i just decided to walk and part of that was again just purely instrumental like you hit a certain age you got to exercise a every day. Mm-hmm. And you walk. I was mm-hmm. like, photography is a thing that you can do and get exercise at the same time. Mm-hmm. Just true. very compartmentalizing. And it's a great, it's great for that. In my, you can tell in my my evangelical spiel in favor of photography, I'm very positive about it. That's one of the things I love about it. But part of being on the street in LA was this weird sense of like, does anyone own this or am i just walking into a set and part of that was like yeah it's it's not a place that the streets although they're beautiful the sidewalks are wide and you know there it's it's like a great place to walk and i talk about in the book it being like a series of villages right it's it mm-hmm. actually is a series of yeah, villages yep. that are just connected but and now they're connected by these unbelievably like dante like kind of infernos of of homelessness under the underpasses and stuff but you know once you go through there you're back in some kind of village so i guess i just felt that too like i had that special feeling of like being an anthropologist on mars kind of feeling of like oh wow there's like nobody's out here no one's everyone's taking pictures but you know they're taking pictures of themselves
0: so let me ask you before because we're sort of running out of time and i think it's important because you talked you mentioned it in our conversation today, and you've talked many, many times over the years, both in interviews that you've given and and brought it up in your own writing about photography, about this idea that the camera is only interested in surface. That's all it can do. And you know, the artist, the, the user of the camera has to bring everything else. So, how does that work with someone who considers themselves a documentary photographer who's out meeting the world? As it is, are those two things at odds, or is there a way they can coexist?
2: I don't see them as at o- as being at odds, and and that's partly because the distinction of what is a documentary photographer is not a thing that I think we're doing right normally. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of think that everything is every photograph is a, is a document. Mm-hmm. I think you're talking about maybe more journalistic photography, photography that's more devoted to the idea that it's telling the truth.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm even thinking about the FSA group, like Walker Evans and Dorothy and Well,
2: I I feel like that work is perfect for where I was going to go with this. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I just don't think that the, the question of whether a photograph is telling the truth is, is an interesting question mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's just not a question that I think is worth spending a lot of time chewing on because first of all, I don't think there's any way to really know. And I just don't think that it, I don't think that idea of the truth exists, right? We all know that every truth that a camera makes is from one vantage point in one hundred of a second in one moment. And Everything that a photograph can do and can offer us is in that transaction, right? What does this person have to say Mm -hmm. about what they're seeing? That's what matters. I just feel like we're living in this world where everything we thought was real, like there's going to be a podcast about it next week that's going to tell us that it wasn't real. Mm -hmm. The idea of the truth is totally fungible, And, and I'm saying that not wanting to bow to President 45 and his monstrous assault on the idea of the truth. I feel like instead of shutting down the truth, what I'm doing is my sense of photography is that it opens up the idea of it in the same way that when you're reading a great story, you can care what the label on the back of the book tells you, whether it's literature or whether it's journalism, like you, that can matter to you. Mm-hmm. But what's really happening is the feeling you're getting when you're into that story. And so, you know, I personally don't claim that any of these pictures are the truth. Mm -hmm. But I think that they have a really deep connection to the real world. Mm -hmm. Like, I think they're very devoted to that idea in the same way that, you know, your partner, you could, let's say you're, you're kind of like lying in bed with your partner And that partner could tell you about something that had happened to them that day. Or they could tell you about a dream that they had had that night. Those are two different things. And yet you still get a strong sense of your feelings for that person routed Mm -hmm. through that story. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, I'm so happy that you kind of picked up on the book as a very full but also kind of like modest Right. It has 150 some odd pictures in it, but it's small in scale. Like I didn't want to have this be some kind of coffee table book. Right. Like I like the idea that you could stick it in your pocket and take it with you. Yeah,
0: that's obvious. And
2: like it looks like a Bible to me. Yeah. And I'm trying to get Aperture to get it in every uh, hotel room uh, (laughs) in in America. But apparently that's that may not happen. (laughs) So I'm squirreling out of this question a little bit. No, no. But it's but I do think question. that I do think that like what do we know when people look into the FSA photographers? Well, they're m- manipulating things. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Are they're like putting the hat over there? Mm-hmm. And anyone that says they haven't done that is lying. And who cares then? The idea is, what do you have to tell me? And you know that, you know, that's just the thing that that we ask of artists. I do that. I walk in, I go, what is this person trying to tell me? Mm-hmm. And how are they trying to reach me? And if they're not trying to reach me, if they're just going like, <laughs> which a lot of art I think is, or if they're just going like, here's art and I'm just going to make more art, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm bored immediately by that. Uh, so I know that, like, the thrill of wrangling things in the outer world, kind of being out in the world. You know, I was raised in a place where my parents weren't watching me. I just was, from a very young age, wandering around, sometimes Mm -hmm. with a camera, but often just with friends wandering around, picking up junk in a street and, you know, playing in a vacant lot and having the whole run of the town. Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe this is purely constitutional that I feel happy, being out in the world. And I think part of it is feeling not that comfortable with just being alone. Yeah. So the idea that there's a kind of theater to this, that I'm out there having to kind of wrangle things. Now, that doesn't mean there is a lot of manipulation in these pictures. There's actually hardly any. But certainly there's, hey, can I take your picture? And hold on, don't move. Right. Or could you mind standing over here? You know, but mostly there's what i call praying to the photography gods which is just walking around all day getting nothing the the photography gods are cruel and they demand our time you have to you have to sacrifice lots of time for there to be a good one
0: if it wasn't your world if this wasn't your la your name wouldn't be on the book exactly you know i mean it's it's your world that you want us to see so
2: You know, uh, when I was a poet, I was mentored by this poet named Larry Fagan, who was a kind of second generation New York school poet, (laughs) an irascible and unusual man who died a couple of years ago. Wonderful, brilliant, funny, affable. He used to put out a magazine called Adventures in Poetry, uh, and every year he put out an an issue without any names of any of the poets Mm -hmm. on the poems. And it was extremely difficult to tell whose they were. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, you can go on Instagram and click on a place and look at, you know, whatever the top things of that place are, and they're always going to be like a really sexy girl standing in front of whatever it is. But um, that's not why we, you know, we don't come to art to look at things anonymously. We want to know about the author, even if the author is remote and cool or is pounding out torturously one line. Like, I, my favorite poet is Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, there's someone who clearly loved torturing herself to pound out one strange, obtuse, bizarre line <laughs> after another. But she loved that, mm-hmm. right? And that, that feeling of devotion is a thing that's really present in art. I think that's, that's valuable. Whether or not the person is telling some kind of objective truth or not.
0: Well... I agree, and I think that's a really nice place to end. So, thank you, Tim, so much for for spending time with me today. I wanted to do this for many weeks, and we finally worked it out. So, thank you, thank you.
2: Oh, anytime. I'm I'm. You know, if you want me to like uh, come on sometime and be a uh, you know your Ed McMahon uh i i i'm happy to do it
0: hey ho! no one's gonna get the johnny carson yeah i mean i made two johnny (laughs) carson you have you have oh
2: god (laughs) it's terrible aging (laughs) who's the guy on conan the other guy who's the sidekick? people don't have sidekicks andy richter no
0: and by the way i i don't even i think conan's gone too so
2: conan is gone
0: i am the queen of digression and i think you may be the king I am. So the king. Um, maybe I'll, if Michael can't, my producer can't do an intro with me sometime. I'll call you up because that's the banter hour.
2: Right, right, right. Uh, okay.
0: All right, it's a deal. All Movie. right, Tim. Thank you so much. Yep. Okay. All right, talk to you soon. Yep. Yep. Bye. Bye.
1: Photo work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chovan Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by Jay Walter Hawks. You can hear photo work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.